Welcome to Beyond Queer Stories, the podcast that gives voice to the queer community through the art of storytelling. Welcome to Beyond Queer Stories. I'm Dawn. And I'm John Dillon. Glad to be here. Yes, we have a wonderful guest, Ada Chang, today. Welcome, Ada. How are you? Thank you for having me. Yes, we're excited to have you. And I'm going to tell our listeners a little bit about you. Ada Ching is a professor turned storyteller, solo performer, and storytelling show producer. She's been featured in storytelling shows and done two solo performances all over the country. She is the producer and host of four storytelling shows, including Pour One Out, Am I Man Enough, Talk Stories, an Asian-American, Asian diaspora storytelling show, and Speaking Truth series. She creates platforms for people to tell difficult and vulnerable stories, as well as spaces for people in communities who may not have opportunities otherwise. She currently works as the Education and Outreach Specialist with Women's Leadership and Resource Center at UIC, providing training on issues related to gender-based violence. Her interests span multiple fields, including academia, storytelling performance art, and advocacy. Her motto, make your life the best story you tell. I love that. Oh, thank you. It's a wonderful motto. And I just want to mention that you were also on one of my shows. Yes. And I meant enough. uh, Was at Center on Hostess. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much for being a part of the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a wonderful experience. Like you said, creating that space for those vulnerable stories. It was wonderful to be a part of that. Um, And I think when I started telling stories, I found a lot of spaces are, um, you know, entertainment oriented. Mm. And and I, you know, of course, I have funny stories, but I um, there are also stories uh, about violence or trauma and vulnerability. Mm And particularly from an Asian American experience, I oftentimes find myself in white dominated spaces where mm-hmm. I don't feel my stories necessarily fit. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not to say the audience are not interested in the stories, mm-hmm. um, but I oftentimes wonder if you know it feels I feel like I'm the odd one out, mm-hmm. and. Uh, because I'm telling stories that um, oftentimes it's about culture, it's about context, it's about depth, mm-hmm. uh, it's about structural equ- inequity, mm-hmm. um, and it's about structural uh, sociological analysis of our you know social justice issues. And so I created a show to, for people to tell these type of stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's trauma-informed, uh, mm-hmm. vulnerability-centered, yeah. and oftentimes deal with difficult and controversial topics. Mm-hmm. Sure, we will have stories that are entertaining, uh, but entertainment is not the point. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I always tell tellers, you don't need to entertain people. Mm-hmm. That's not the point. It's, it's really about education. It's about mm-hmm. making connection with the audience. Exactly, yeah. I think that speaks to our question that we always start off with as well. You want to kick us off, Jondalyn? Yes, and basically what we want to understand is what identities do you feel most influence your experiences? What identities? Wow, that's a very loaded question. Right. Um, here's the thing. Uh, you know, it, it comes to you, then we're talking about a the double side of oppression and privilege. Mm. 
what do people see when they first see me? Mm -hmm. I'm not just a woman. Mm -hmm. I'm an Asian woman, right? We will never be able to escape that physical aspect, that first impression of our encounter. Mm -hmm. uh, when people see me, um, you know, this face is the marker of difference, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, so I don't need to talk about any other identities because that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. When I'm in front of people, talking to people, in front of the classroom, to students, uh, working with colleagues, mm -hmm. that's the first thing. Now, other identities, um, I'm bisexual. And the thing is, I also pass, mm. right? Unless I deliberately out myself, the default assumption people have about me is always I'm heterosexual. And so... That becomes the tricky issue. That is, when do I out myself? Mm -hmm. When do I deliberately bring that conversation about sexuality into play? Mm -hmm. So there's that, the, you know, about race. I'm also an immigrant, mm -hmm. right? And you may not be able to tell with that first encounter, my first three words. But at some point, you're going to see there's accent, mm -hmm. right? And then inevitably, people are going to ask certain questions. And I'm also, you know, from middle class, um, have been to academia, uh, was a tenure professor. So I am also aware, as much as I experience discrimination and oppression in all these different identities, uh, my own class status my own status in academia, my own educational background, mm -hmm. do to a certain extent buffer, right, that injury, mm -hmm. not completely. Um, so that's very interesting where internally people may not know. Mm -hmm. I'm always struggling with that both dimension. You know, how do I understand my own oppression but also acknowledge my own privileges at the same time? Thank you so much for that. So I also identify as someone who passes as not queer, right? Mm -hmm. And I was so excited when I got your email and you reached out because I didn't know how you identified with sexuality. I know you're, you know, producing these stories and these spaces for us to have that space to tell our stories and hosting them at the Center on Halsted. But I also try not to make those assumptions like, I don't know until someone tells me. Nobody knows how I identify until I tell them. I was so thrilled to have you on here. And it is true that we really can't make assumptions, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, in some way, in some way, yeah, you, you might wonder, why do I have the interest in producing this kind of shows, mm. right? On the other hand, uh, you really can't make assumptions. Mm -hmm. um, and I have per performed in uh, LGBTQ uh, center space before. Yeah. Um, and, and so, it, and, and I think we met at different, you know, points in terms of our journeys in mm -hmm. storytelling. Right. And so it's hard to really know, you know, when did I out myself? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, these days you really can't make assumptions. Right. right? It's... Uh, and this, it, it raised a really interesting question about passing. What mm -hmm. does that mean? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a, something that I struggle with a lot. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think as us all sitting here as women within this community who are all fairly feminine presenting mm -hmm. and can pass, 
that's an interesting experience for us to all share and connect on as well because like you said, when we think about what identities do influence the way mm -hmm. we move about the world, the way we experience the world, passing has a pretty significant impact both when navigating queer space and non-queer space. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just, you know, something that we can probably talk on so many. That's my dissertation, honestly. I'll mm -hmm. just throw that out there. That's my dissertation because mm -hmm. I'm so fascinated by how our gender expression influences the way others interpret us, the way others interact with us, and Absolutely. then those assumptions that they make. And then that can put pressure on us to feel like we need to out ourselves, we need to figure out how to slip it into conversation so people will know we're a part of the community they identify with as well if we're looking for that connection and especially trying to build community, whether someone's just coming out or they moved to a new area, like, you know, Jondalyn, you just moved. It can be a big part of the process when you aren't read as queer or bisexual right. or whatever identity you hold to make those connections if people are just kind of excluding you based on appearance. Absolutely. I mean, I think for me, the race also adds to the complexity. Yeah. I mean, I think a, a lot of it is not just in terms of how I present myself. It's also how oftentimes the Asian American woman identity itself and, and mm. the assumptions and stereotypes that come with that, you know, identity that mm -hmm. we are oftentimes assumed to be uh, sexually submissive and mm -hmm. obedient and uh, exalted. And oftentimes mm -hmm. that's within the heterosexual right. Right, uh, frame. And so, so the sexuality oftentimes is very much embedded within the racial discourse itself. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other thing that, um, that I find it very difficult for me to participate in the queer spaces mm -hmm. in Chicago, um, part of it is also because of my age mm -hmm. and also being an immigrant. Age, in a sense, I'm in my 50s. Um, you know, I know I, I know I don't look like... Great. <laughs> 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 uh, right. Um, but the thing is, I moved to Chicago in 2001, and I moved here at an age where a lot of queer women already partner up mm, with yep. someone, mm -hmm. right? And I remember first arriving in the city, and, you know, I, I got a job in academia. Mm -hmm. And you probably notice a lot of academic women mm -hmm. oftentimes uh, partner up with another someone in academia mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really want to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, you know, I, if I'm already in academia, yeah. I, I need to broaden my horizon. You know, yeah. I don't want to be with somebody who is in the same field, mm -hmm. in the same, you know, uh, at the same university. Yeah. Um, I don't want to pass on judgment uh, <laughs> to anyone who who does that, but. I find it, you know, what if you break up? Mm -hmm. What if something happens? Um, but also just for my own intellectual uh, curiosity, intellectual curiosity and interest, and I want something different beyond the academia. Mm -hmm. And so I actually, when I first arrived in 20, 2001, I actually looked outside of the academia mm -hmm. and trying to find a space for myself. And what I have I found is, you know, when we think about where's where where are the queer women's spaces here in Chicago? Mm, right, there's absolutely none. No permanent ones. Exactly, they're curated. So there's Boys Town. Yeah. So now we can look into Andersonville as well. Right. But 
think about when you think、mm-hmm. about Andersonville, do you see me fit into that?、Mm-hmm. And the men have been taking it over, to be honest. Absolutely, they really have. And and in two thousand one. Andersonville still very much, you know, visibly lesbian.、Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there is definitely at a time, you could still call that as、right. a space where it is very visibly marked、mm-hmm. as lesbian and queer. But then, I still couldn't find.、Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't, you know, where do, did I fit? Yeah.、Um, because no matter what. I'm not, you know, I'm never just a queer woman to you, queer、mm-hmm. woman.、Mm. I'm really an Asian queer woman、mm-hmm. or an immigrant queer woman、right. to queer woman,、mm. right?、Uh, particularly when I say queer woman, I mean white queer woman. Yeah.、Um, so then, okay, how do I go to Argyle, <laughs> right?、Mm. Do I and and so in a lot of.、Um, Asian queer, you know, LGBTQ community are still very much invisible at a time.、Mm-hmm. You know, there was some or- organizing,、um, but no one was necessarily out and about.、Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I was able to meet some people, but I, f- I had a tough time trying to find what's that physical space that I can call my own.、Mm-hmm. Where do I find my people? But the question is. What's my, you know, who are the, the people that I'm thinking about?、Mm-hmm. Who are my people? Yeah. And right,、um, and particularly if I'm older, a lot of these spaces are for younger queer women. Yeah. And then where do I fit? Because、uh, no matter where I go, I'm always a generation older. Yep. And so,、um, so I, you know, that mismatch.、Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I call that mismatch. I felt that in two thousand one, and I still feel that、mm-hmm. now these days. Where you know where where is the queer space? Right, Boys Town, Andersonville. No, right. right?、Mm-hmm. There's really no specific specific physical space marked by queer for queer women.、Mm-hmm. And so I have been able to connect with I to I queer Asian American Asian Asian American group. Uh, but these, this group is very much for younger generation、mm-hmm. of LGBTQ community.、Mm-hmm. So it's a place where I make friends,、uh, but these are also friends. You know, sometimes one generation younger, two、yeah. generations younger,、mm-hmm. and so I find it very difficult to fit in.、Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Chicago, I'm not sure if this is specific to Chicago, but this seems to be the story for me in、yeah. the United States, for sure. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate to really looking for community、um, because your life is so、mm-hmm. intersectional.、Um, and you know, I, I would say you know you think about the spirituality aspect, and then you think about、mm-hmm. you know being a person of color. You think of you know、mm-hmm. being a part of academia. But not really wanting to sit up and talk about the hard facts of academic work, and you know, getting so haughty、right. in your in your thinking, and like you know, so can I just? Is it possible just to connect with like-minded people who are somewhat around your age range? You know, it's okay. You know, I'm in my forties, and I'm like, I'm I get it. It's not going to happen exactly the way I want it, but the 
there there really is a drought, you know, and coming to Oakland, you know, I'm 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 still trying to navigate that scene as well. It looks more open, but Chicago definitely could could use um, some upgrades within that area because it there are certain spaces like there's affinity on the south side of Chicago and they have a you know a really good connection. But I'm like, I would love to see what the center on Halstead has on the north side. I would love to see what that would look like in the same, you know, duplicated for the community on the south side because they don't have that. You know, so you look up and people just kind of you know, hit their own little bar spots and that's where community happens. But I, I believe that it, it it's it's one of those things where it's like, well, how do we change this? You know, I think about that all the time. Like, what can I do to make a change and create community if I have to, even if it's online? Because some people just like, I don't feel safe in certain spaces. You know, this is not to say that people are not friendly, mm. right? But people are. But there's a difference between people's attitude Mm. and the space itself. Those are two yeah. very different things. Mm-hmm. People can be very friendly. And, and I think people generally want to welcome. Mm-hmm. But sometimes space can present itself as exclusive mm-hmm. in ways that unless you consciously really think through, right. you will not be able to understand. And, you know, how do we change? Part of the reason I started partnering up with Gen- uh, Center on Hosted and if you look at my line up, mm-hmm. you know it's not a typical profile mm-hmm. that we associate with Central and Hosted. Right. You know, yeah. I think when we think about Central and Hosted, it is, you know, we, it's very much a mirror image of Boys Town, mm-hmm. right? And I have had um, organizations where they don't want to go to Central and Hosted. Right. Exactly because of that. Mm-hmm. And so as someone who has been working in institutions for a long time, there's a reason I left, because I could not deal with the struggles anymore, Mm -hmm. right? It was very exhausting trying to change the institution. Mm. I left. However, now that I'm outside, and and I acknowledge that you can, that we need both. We Mm -hmm. need people to change from inside. We also need people to change from outside. Yeah. So for me... Taking my show to center on Hosted presented itself as ways that we can challenge, mm-hmm. right? Through the topic itself, but also through the lineup. Mm-hmm. That is, can we, you know, use uh, practices to subtly challenge, you know, what's mm-hmm. going on, to shift the paradigm and to present yeah. a very different picture. That is, Maybe this should look more like a queer community mm-hmm. as, a po- as opposed to, you know, what we oftentimes see as central hosted. Yeah. And this is not to say that they're not doing good work, but, right? And, and so that's the yeah. very much the, you know, the dichotomy or the, the dissonance that we're seeing mm-hmm. where people genuinely mm-hmm. want to do good work, mm-hmm. uh, good intentions, Right. Right. But the impact yeah. is something very different. Right. And yeah. so for me, um, right. now, you know, someone now um, as a staff member in a higher education institution, I always, I don't think about, oh, making larger changes anymore. Because mm-hmm. if that's my goal, I'm going to exhaust myself. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, as a woman of color, 
I learned that I need to safeguard my mm-hmm. energy, mm-hmm. and I nur- need to nurture myself. Otherwise, mm-hmm. my energy will be completely drained, yeah. and I will have no joy in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is very important for me to understand, you know, I don't need to engage in every battle, mm-hmm. right? To really understand what's my battle, mm-hmm. and to subtly subvert Right through different practices, subvert the structure, mm-hmm. and, and so that's how I think about change. I do it in the ways that make sense to me, mm-hmm. um, because otherwise we're going to have people who are consist, you know, constantly burned out. Yeah, and and change has to be sustainable, mm-hmm. and if that that's the case, the first thing we need to think about is self care. Mm-hmm. Is how do we preserve our own energy? while engaging in consistent social changes. Um, you know, I got burned out. Part of the reason I left the academia was because, you know, I got burned out. Yeah. Because I was always engaging in battles. Mm-hmm. And at some point, you realize that um, that means every second, every minute, right, every mm-hmm. five minutes, and you're going to become disillusioned, mm. right? You're going to become hopeless mm-hmm. or helpless, overwhelmed. And, and so now I'm very careful um, drawing that boundary and understand, you know, recognize what, what's that threshold that I'm going to really get burned out. Mm-hmm. Perhaps I should simply not push the boundary at this point. Mm-hmm. It, it's okay. And, and so for me now, thinking about social changes, um, I think in what's the sustainable way I can do it, right? Mm-hmm. What's that platform, the medium that I have, and be realistic about the impact, mm-hmm. right? And do it, and, and so how do we think in social changes in sustainable way, but also preserve our own energy? Hey, you made me think about a couple of things just to add additional truth and, and affirmations to what you're saying. Um, I remember uh, a buddy of mine um, who made the decision to start transitioning from female to male, and they were looking for a space just to engage with others who are on that same trajectory, they're on the same path, um, and to really be in a group where they can celebrate one another and have support. And I remember going to the center on Hosted, and I was talking to um, someone there, and they were like, don't bring them here. I said, why? And they were like, it's, we're too white. And I'm like, how can we change that? Because there is someone that's, that's, who shares this zip code, but may not share your ethnicity that still needs you, you know, and they could bring over others. Um, and so it made me think about how important, and I was looking through your bio again about the, the emphasis of storytelling and making sure that our voices don't go stagnant, that they don't go deaf, um, that you know people are heard because when you're in the fight for your life just to identify, it's so important that you have someone around you. I'm grateful that you you know create these platforms. Um, and I had to go back to my buddy and tell them we gotta find someplace else because the, the center you know may not be the best location though they are doing phenomenal work. They have, they have the program set up. You know, one of my former professors 
in my master's program works there. And I know that he's making a difference. I know he's changing lives. And I, I can see people are coming in and it's like I'm home, but everyone is getting the same experience. So I'm very grateful that you're setting that up for, for, for people. And, and I think people forget, um, and I, you know, sometimes I don't know how to articulate that. That is, people tend to assume that's just add colors, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Just this piecemeal, oh, let me add this black person. Let me add mm-hmm. this Asian person. Let me mm-hmm. add this Latino person, and let's mm-hmm. make it diverse, mm-hmm. right? We can take a picture, and yes, it'll look diverse, it right? look diverse. But here's the problem. What well, fundamentally I try to assure, uh, my shows are diverse, too. Mm-hmm. But what's the difference? That is, the epistemology yeah. is very different. And, and so I have, you know, working, uh, to say, in academia, this is very similar, you know, debates and situations. In academia, theater, storytelling, in comedy, mm-hmm. you see that people, st- you know, stay at this level of diversity, mm-hmm. right? But they don't think about And then I went and said this to somebody. I said, you know, I cannot talk about diversity without doing my part on equity and inclusion. So the question is, if you simply talk about diversity, then oftentimes I see in storytelling scene is Mm -hmm. you always have the same black person, Mm -hmm. the same Asian person, Mm -hmm. the same gay person, the same Latino. You see that, Mm -hmm. right? We see the same people circling around in different shows, the same one. Mm -hmm. And then you have to to think about, and I do not believe that people don't think about it, in a city (laughs) filled with millions of immigrants, you see Mm -hmm. the same immigrant Mm -hmm. telling the story over and over again. You see the same gay LGBTQ member telling Mm -hmm. the story over and over again. Mm -hmm. You see the same Latino, the same black person Mm -hmm. telling the story. You don't think about that's an issue. Mm -hmm. And and so for me, it's not about diversity. It has Mm -hmm. always been about equity and inclusion. And if you think about equity and inclusion, then you have to really think about how do I design the space and transform the space completely different from the epistemology mm-hmm. of the person or the groups that you are trying to serve right. from their point of view, right. from their experiences? Mm-hmm. Um, and, from, and, and so for me, it's never just about the service. It's always about the epistemology. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying, you know, and this is I'm, what I have been trying to do is constantly ask myself, what's the better practice, mm-hmm. right? How do, I, how do I do it better? Yeah. Um, you know, am I falling into the trap of mix and match? Or mm-hmm. am I really doing the equitable, you know, equity and inclusion work? Mm-hmm. And what does that mean, Right. And so these are the questions that I constantly think to myself, not in terms of we need to completely transform it, but are there stages of development that we can think about, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think about, sure, I create these shows. And in some way, these shows are still through my visions. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point, I have to think about, are my visions shared by people who have been to my show? And, and mm-hmm. most likely... They will be. They agree to be on my show because they also share my visions. Mm-hmm. But then, 
I have to think about what's next. Meaning, how do I cultivate new、mm. emerging talents? Yeah, not just give people opportunities,、mm-hmm. and that's simply just the first step. Can I equip them with the the, the ability to produce?、Mm-hmm. That's the next step, right?、Um, and, and so these are the things that I constantly think about. And 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 what I find sometimes with organizations, institutions,、um, you know, the artistic fields that we tend to just stay at the first level.、Mm-hmm. Let's just、um, you know add some colors, and then we end up perpetuating, presenting, creating a situation.、Mm-hmm. And let me use this term that I have been、um, that I have seen is essentially this is a, it's another plantation、mm-hmm. that you see. Right,、yep. what I call as the artistic plantation,、mm. where you have the the white, you know, producers or、mm. artist directors or whoever、mm. the CEOs on top, yeah, and then integrate people of color,、mm-hmm. right, because they want the stories,、mm-hmm. but they don't think about systematically、mm-hmm. making the space people of color centered. Mm-hmm. In terms of power structure,、yeah. in terms of sharing power,、mm-hmm. decision making power,、mm-hmm. and that's a very different issue. And so,、um, you know, so these are the things that I,、uh, you know, think about not only in storytelling,、uh, but in educational institution.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's so important. And those systems, kind of. Ending on your statement about the educational system too, and your frustration with academia, and the reason I feel so many people leave academia because of trying to do the work. Trying, even if you're in a system that is saying how they center social justice and social justice and academia is kind of a buzzword now at this point, where、oh. you know this is on our website. This is what、Co-optation, we do. Co-optation, isn't it? Yeah, and when people get in there and they just keep hitting those walls, absolutely, it's it's so hard to create that change. And you know, it's really interesting. We, you know, in my workplace, we had a retreat yesterday, and we're talking about exactly the same thing. Where、mm-hmm. the the higher educational system, the educational institutions have this ability to co-opt、mm-hmm. progressive causes、mm-hmm. and professionalize them. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So you, they, it's and and you, you make these so-called social justice、uh, type of progressive disciplines and create these centers, right, institutes、mm-hmm. that look progressive,、mm-hmm. but in fact, it's a way to weaken the cause,、mm. right? It's not a radical space within、mm. university、mm. to challenge the system of power, right, right. And no, I mean, I I was in, you know, part of it. I, the way I think about higher education, and I oftentimes say this way, you know, as a caveat, people will ask me, do you, with a job situation,、mm-hmm. in in you know, should they go for a PhD?、Mm-hmm. And I oftentimes say, only if you have intellectual curiosity,、mm-hmm. and make sure that education done right. Mm. Because there are two sides to advanced education, master degree or PhD, or even、uh, you know higher education in general.、Mm-hmm. Are we talking about disciplining, indoctrination, or are we talking about、mm-hmm. true education 
enlightenment and transformative yeah. right vision. So what I have seen is that uh, academic people are the most conforming group mm. that I have ever seen because mm-hmm. they are trained so much, confined by their own discipline, yeah. that they are unable to challenge it, mm. right? And so I see two sides. Are you, do you enter the program to be disciplined mm-hmm. and indoctrinated and thus becoming conforming and conformistist? Mm-hmm. Or are you there to really get an education in the radical sense, mm-hmm. to be transformed and to become transformative? Mm-hmm. And I see both, Yeah. right? And so who leaves the academia? The one who really want to change. Every step of the way that you're going to encounter the topic that you're studying, Mm-hmm. The method you used to study, right? What gets seen as a valuable topic? Mm-hmm. How do you get funding, right? Yeah. Who is going to publish it? It is seen credible enough, right? Right. right. Um, if you do topics that are considered prestigious and mainstream, it's much mm-hmm. easier for you to get a job, mm-hmm. right. Right? right? Publish and get publish, grants, right. right? Get grants, and this yeah. is particularly true. In social sciences and you know natural mm-hmm. sciences, right? Um, you know psychology is still mm-hmm. very much you know very similar to so I'm, I'm a trained mm-hmm. sociologist, very much still within that quantitative tradition. For uh, sure, you know, sociology has changed quite a bit, but still, it's it's about what's the dominant paradigm. Right. So if you are doing work challenging the dominant paradigm, mm-hmm. you're gonna have a tough time having your topic respected. Right getting grants to do your research, mm-hmm. getting published, getting a tenure track job, right? right? Um, and so that affects, or simply getting mentored, yeah. right? That right? And so every step of the way that people are going to, you know, stumble into wars. Mm-hmm. And, they, you know, I fought those battles myself, but the thing, this is what I learned very important and it's hard to really uh, we oftentimes tend to look to external validation mm-hmm. the awards we feel that the awards right. see something about our work mm-hmm. right the mm-hmm. the publication yeah. at the mainstream uh, journal say something about our work mm-hmm. or getting recognized or invited to panels or mm-hmm. keynotes all these right or even tenures that we feel that says something about work. But here's the thing, it didn't take long for me to to recognize that tenure is very political. Oh God, yes. It's very it is. subjective. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Who gets published is mm-hmm. not an objective question. It's right. a political question. And so so then the question is, how do you in some way find self worth mm-hmm. without looking into the external reward system? Mm-hmm. A, as a way to validate your own work is um and, and so that's it's a struggle yeah it's yeah. a struggle thank you for sharing i'm noticing the time as well and it it is time for your story that i feel like i could talk about that for days because i just finished that system but i want to make sure we have time and I, for your you story are, you survived well. i did and i feel so hard everything that you said in that last piece because that's part of why I decided to not go into academia and go more clinical-based because mm-hmm. I don't want that life of what feels like always chasing. 
And mm. I want, like you said, to have space for the joy. Interesting. <laughs> you know, I when I first got my degree, I just thought that was what I had to do. We never really thought about those mm. questions. Yeah. And the minute I got tenured, then I realized, wow, this is really not what I want for the right. rest of my life. Exactly. Um, and I couldn't quite figure out what do I do with this job. Yeah. Right. I made it. It, that's like the top tier, right? Like it's that's like, what people uh, fight for. You know, I, I made it yeah. and as an immigrant. You know, it was very difficult for me to even get a job mm-hmm. as a foreigner. So I made it. And and it was very difficult for me to tell people, this is really not what I want yeah. for the rest of my life. Yeah. And so how do you really resist mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that the trap of success? Mm-hmm. to simply mm-hmm. pursue what you want and do the work you want to do. Um, mm-hmm. No wonder there are a lot of miserable people in academia. Yeah. I appreciate you. I'm actually in it. Don finished. <laughs> I'm in my third semester. You're right behind me. <laughs> I'm in my third semester of my PhD, and I'm literally hanging on to every word, and I'm just like having these thoughts about making sure I want this to be what I want it to mm-hmm. be and not mm-hmm. a cookie cutter because I can't do it. Right. If you right. can, you know, if you enjoy doing it, if you still have joy, do it. Yeah. But if it doesn't bring you any joy, mm-hmm. don't. Right. There are different ways to make impact. The way I think about PhD is something that you can use it, uh, flaunt it when necessary. Mm-hmm. Nobody is going to take away your PhD, mm-hmm. right? You can use it. We are overqualified, but mm-hmm. we are also unqualified for everything, mm-hmm. unfortunately, right? We're overqualified. But the thing is that everything you learn through a PhD program can prepare you for different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the thing is, fundamentally, at some point between status, prestige, respect, uh, middle class, comfort, stability versus just being happy. Right, yeah. And people get trapped. Mm-hmm. And, and so at some point you have to ask this question, do I still want to be human mm-hmm. and be happy? Mm-hmm. Or do I want you toy under the context of toxicity? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. I'm excited to hear what you have. Wonderful. And this piece is entitled, Dear White Woman. Dear White Woman, I regretted saying nothing to you, so I'm writing this letter. It was a good day that first Friday in October 2019. Sunny and cool. It was around 2 p.m. I just finished presenting my gender-based violence workshop at a medical school at UIC. I had started this new job with the university in July, and this workshop was the first major one I had to conduct with this new position. I was happy because I thought everything went well, so well that student organizers told me that they wanted me back in spring. I was feeling proud, standing in front of the medical school building entrance on Polk Street. When I ordered Lyft to return to my office, you were right there dropping off someone. I was elated that I didn't have to wait long. The day is really going my way, I thought to myself. I got into your car and said, 
Thank you so much. How are you? My standard greeting to a Lyft driver. You glanced at me through the mirror and said, "I'm good. Where are you from?" Just like that, out of the blue. We're sitting inches from each other, yet the case in between us suddenly felt like a thousand miles. I paused. Where are you from? Is one of my most dreaded questions. I was asked so very often before becoming a citizen in 2015. It was simple. When I first arrived in this country from Taiwan as a student back in 1991, I was foreign after all, with my stronger accent then and wearing clothing I brought from home. Yet, with each passing year or decade, this question has become more complicated and layered. I can no longer answer it with ease. This question was posed to me even after I became a citizen in May 2015. That same afternoon, after the naturalization ceremony, in the days and the weeks and the months and the years afterwards, this question never stopped. Why would I have expected anything different? The certificate of naturalization, that piece of paper certifying my citizenship status, didn't change anyone's perception of me as someone from somewhere else. My status might have changed, but my face didn't. I mean, my accent wasn't that thick, so thick that you would mistake me as foreign. You had no other reference than this face of mine, the only marker of difference. Just like a million other faces from Asia, and when I hesitated, you asked. Originally, like I didn't know what you were asking, like I didn't already have a script for this question, like I hadn't answered the same question over and over, like I hadn't said originally myself many times before, like my silence was my lack of understanding of your words or. English. No, I was killing you softly in the back seat with my gaze, filled with both sorrow and rage, calculating how much I, I should let you remark, and therefore you shape the rest of my day, or days after that. When I told you I was from Taiwan, you started talking about how your brother-in-law was working there and how he loved it. I asked. Which city he was living on the island? You couldn't say. You simply went on and on about his beautiful experiences in Asia. I wanted to tell you. I don't fucking care. I mean, do you even know the difference between Taiwan and Thailand? Because many Americans can't even distinguish these two words, and these two countries, since the first part of these two words sounds exactly the same. I wanted to lecture you about profiling, though. A softer type of profiling, the type of profiling that doesn't kill us, but it makes us, marks us as different. It tells us we don't belong. It is a form of racial profiling masked as cultural curiosity, often loved. 
by both liberals and conservatives alike pretending to be cosmopolitan. Yet culture is no substitute for race. You might ask, does it mean I can't ask this question at all? Of course, it is not that you can't ask it. It is how and when you ask the question. It is the context within which you ask it. Context is everything. Ask yourself, is this how you greet every human being you come across on your drive, in a party, on the street? Or do you direct this phrase to only people with certain facial features, features deemed as foreign and alien, or shall we say, exotic? There are millions of people with facial features similar to mine who were born in the United States. This is a place they call home. They are not from somewhere else. They have always been here. By asking them that question, you are telling them that they don't fit the image of what an American should be. Where are you from marks someone as an outsider, outside of a norm and a standard against which you used to judge them. I'm the other against the white faces you count as American. Whether I was indeed born somewhere else is beside the point. I might be a citizen on paper, but it is still a long way to belong and to call this country home, even after three decades. Let me tell you a story. I once performed my solo, not quite, at Moines, Iowa. During the talkback, a middle-aged white woman vehemently disputed my comment about the racial implications of this phrase. She insisted that she could not be racist since her husband sitting right next to her was a Chinese man from Hong Kong. It was as if her physical proximity to a person of color could excuse or exonerate her of any bias or prejudice. She said that she was simply curious about other cultures. Insisting on her good intentions, she wouldn't stop arguing until another white audience asked her to ponder this question. Who is in the rightful place to define racism? I believe you if you say you were simply trying to be friendly, except benevolent intentions don't always matter, especially when they lead to harmful impact. Not on you, but on me. It should have been a great day for me. Instead, I spent the seven-minute ride debating if I should get out of a car, if saving $5 was worth my dignity, if I should educate you as opposed to simply enjoying my existence, if I should trade dignity for convenience, if I should stay quiet while struggling with my own conscience and doubting if I did the right thing with my silence. All the energy that should have been reserved for my joy that day was wasted on you, while you were so oblivious to everything. I used to intervene until my energy was completely drained, until I no longer had joy in life. And then I realized this. Not every fight should be my fight. I have to pick my battle just to preserve some sanity so I can thrive, not just survive. So I sulked in the back seat and decided that I would write you a letter entitled, Dear White Woman, I consider this piece your compensation for my short ride with you. Best, if not the best, Ada.
Thank you for that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's such an important conversation mm -hmm. to have because I think the piece that is often forgotten, like you said, is people always have this excuse, but my intentions are good. My mm. intentions are good. I don't mean to offend. And as if that is something that they can just use over and over, as even though they get this feedback, like right. the times that they do, right. they fall back on this, what's the right word for it, on this really ignorance, like I'm ignorant of this, so I should be given a pass, mm -hmm. wanting a pass, mm -hmm. wanting the pass multiple times. I mean, I think the interesting, you know, we we are we all have been ignorant, right? You know, as an educator, I mean, I wouldn't be an educator if I do not believe that ignorance is can be forgiven, right, right, and should be forgiven, right? Because how do students learn, right, if they are not allowed to make mistakes? Mm -hmm. And and you know, the question is always about at what point if somebody tell them that you have done injury, at what point do you say, regardless of my intention, regardless how I view myself, I'm going to acknowledge mm -hmm. the injury that my actions might have caused, mm -hmm. right? At what point do I say I'm willing to take their perspectives? As mm -hmm. much as my pride might be you know, the, I want to salvage my pride. I mm -hmm. want to think of myself as a good person. I want to think of myself as an enlightened human being. I want mm -hmm. to think of myself free of racist, you know, bias and prejudice. Mm -hmm. At what point do we are we willing to say, as a human being, that I'm willing to acknowledge that my actions mm -hmm. can cause harm? regardless of our intentions. Right. And, and to hang on to intentions as a way it becomes the, the excuse not to recognize the harm. Mm -hmm. uh, that for me, um, you know, is, is the difficult part to grasp. Mm -hmm. Right, because right, I feel like in those moments, that next action that person takes says so much because then do they use that as a learning moment or do they continue to stand their ground and deny the injury do they use it to shift and evolve we were right. talking in our last recording about evolving and people taking those moments mm -hmm. and using it as an opportunity to grow and learn absolutely and the thing is, you know, in my past, I have made assumptions about people, mm -hmm. say the wrong thing. Right. Um, you know, and, and and people have pointed out to me without, you know, it, it was happened during, you know, when I was a teacher and, and students say they were offended because something I say, which mm -hmm. I didn't even recognize. Mm -hmm. And then my thing is, what's the choice? Do I keep on dwelling and say, no, I didn't intend? Or do I say... No, the impact mm -hmm. is there. Then I simply take stock and do better and just acknowledge it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's about, you know, I remember when I did my solo show and I talked to people. And this, I don't always say that to people. It's not my own humanity that is in question. Mm 
mm-hmm. is the humanity of the audience members. Mm. Because fundamentally, when I'm doing my solo show and uh, the particular first solo show that addressed the you know the the immigration issue, intersectionality, and hate crimes, and essentially is asking people to grasp, mm-hmm. understand, and really wrestle with their own humanity. Mm-hmm. I know my own humanity. Mm-hmm. It is theirs. That's in question. And so it is through storytelling. Are you able to put yourself in other people's shoes? Yeah. Develop understanding, empathy, and compassion, mm-hmm. and then further motivated and compelled to say, I want to do something for other people. Mm-hmm. Or do you still hang on to your own ideal, mm-hmm. right? And say, well, you're just whining. You're, mm-hmm. you're, this is not my issue. Right. And so for me, it's always interesting. Who is able to really confront their own humanity? Mm-hmm. And in being in touch with all the goodness of their heart, as opposed to resisting the idea. Mm-hmm. And I see that on both sides, right? Not just, it is just not the, just the conservatives, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's also from the left, you know, progressives, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I, I want to say this, it was not until the last few years when I was in academia that I fully understood what Dr. Martin Luther King, when he said, it is not the enemy, but the silence of our friends, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I can't remember the full quote. Mm-hmm. It's the silence mm-hmm. of our friends, you know, the left, the progressive, that mm-hmm. it's their silence, knowingly complicit yeah. in perpetrating systems of, of, inequity, mm-hmm. right, oppression. And so I oftentimes say it's not the conservatives that I'm worried about because I know where they stand. Mm. It is the liberals, mm-hmm. the progressive, yeah, right, that it's their silence. Mm-hmm. It's knowing that they're complicit, benefiting mm-hmm. from their privilege. Yeah. And that's where you see people draw the line. Mm. Right, it's when you ask them to kind of give up their privilege, mm-hmm. yeah. then that becomes an issue. And you know, I understand that uh, it, it's hard as a human, and and because we tend to think oppression and privilege as a, a zero sum game. Mm-hmm. If we give, we let the other person win, have something, then it means I lose. Right. And so that's why when we confront privilege for people, it's always, I'm going to lose something. Mm-hmm. But it's not. Mm-hmm. It's about rearranging that system, mm-hmm. right? And so for me, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a struggle. It's how do you really engage that dialogue from people of different political mm-hmm. you know, spectrum? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Yeah, for sure. It just took me back to um, I had some time of engagement with someone, and it was around the Halloween time. And just not to tell the whole story. It was around Halloween time, and they were there were pictures being posted of their friends in blackface. 
Okay. It was like, okay, here we go. And so then their comments, the, the person that I was connected to, their comments were pretty jovial about it. Mm -hmm. so some LOLs, laughing faces. And I sent them a message and I was like, you know, I'm really disheartened to see you engaging in this type of behavior mm -hmm. if it is actually comical. And so this person is also queer and, the, and, the, and the, their other friends are queer as well. And so, you know, of course, they've always been one to wave the banner of being marginalized. Mm -hmm. But they're, they're, they identify as white, but mm -hmm. because of their queerness, they say that they are marginalized. Right, right. And so when I brought up the idea of, you know, you're, you're laughing about this, but this is offensive you know, to people who are going to see it because you have a lot of POCs who are your friends mm -hmm. platform. And, you know, I thought, and I said, I thought that you really were a different person when it came to understanding the, you know, plights of those who are marginalized, mm -hmm. the issues. And then they were like, well, you have to educate me first about this before you get mad at me. Um. I didn't, I didn't know there was a formula. I thought, right. yeah that you know you could stop and you could take a look and right. see what you're doing kind of tap into a little bit of history because we're mm -hmm. much the same age mm -hmm. um, google 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 exists right or just check your, the thing called your heart you know just be open to what you said and under try right. and like Ada was saying like take the perspective of why might you be even bringing up this conversation right, right. Mm -hmm. Right. Be open to it. I mean, the thing it's really interesting. Sometimes we tend to, you know, assume that our marginalization can excuse our own mm -hmm. acts of oppress oppression mm -hmm. against others. That we, we and the the truth is, most of us that we, you know, are marginalized while also participating oppressing mm -hmm. other people at the same time. Right. No one is completely exempt from mm -hmm. that. Um, and so you kind of have to look at both. That is, you know, and this is not to dismiss our experiences of marginalization, mm -hmm. but also understand how our privileges can, uh, you know, that we can perpetuate our own privileges mm -hmm. and, and perpetuate the, the, you know, system of oppression through mm -hmm. our privileges. Mm -hmm. and, and what does that mean to other people? Mm -hmm. And what I find really interesting, you know, about... Uh, another example would be N-word, right? Mm -hmm. Blackface. It's always, what's there to argue, really? Mm. If someone is already telling you, please don't do this. Mm. It's hurtful. It's hurtful. Yeah. What's, what's there to dispute? Mm -hmm. and, and of course, I understand, it, you know, there's also... I get this, and I t sometimes tell people there is a difference between education and calling out. Mm. Meaning, for me, education is giving you know giving people the the space to make mistakes mm -hmm. and help them understand what's the issue, as opposed to calling out. And this is not to say it's not necessary; it is very necessary. Um, that sometimes tend to be about simply pointing out issues. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing, it's always fundamentally is what's there to argue, right? Uh, if mm -hmm. someone is saying, 
this is wrong, don't say this. Mm-hmm. Then probably perhaps just move on and say, acknowledge that, mm-hmm. that this is a mistake on my part. Mm-hmm. I know better. Right now I know better, I, I would do better. Right. Right? And it is hard, I'm going to say this, it is hard for me to imagine at the stage social with our social media that you are not educated mm-hmm. about the issue about the N-word, mm-hmm. about blackface. Right. I do not believe that. Right. And so to say that, you know, you need to educate me, and that's fundamentally becomes exhausting, you know, mm-hmm. for women of color. If I have to educate people, that that would be every minute mm-hmm. of my life. For free. Right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So for me, sometimes it's okay. And, and sometimes I think education is necessary. There are spaces that I create for those mm-hmm. right actions, for those approaches. Mm-hmm. But that should not be a given. That's because... I'm doing that on my own terms, mm-hmm. right? But it should not be a given that that's my job mm-hmm. because it is also our job to educate ourselves right. about issues. And so for me is what's my job mm-hmm. to educate about, let's say, using my own experience with discrimination oppression that I use those experiences to understand other group experiences, mm-hmm. right? Do we simply just stay because we're, that we simply want to learn our experiences as queer people and that's it? Right. I think we have the curiosity to know what would, be, what, what would it mean for other different group experiences? Mm-hmm. What other similarities and differences? Mm-hmm. Right, that's my experience. Is how I understand uh, when I was in Taiwan. The only thing I could understand was gender, mm-hmm. right? Because it's within the context where most people are like me. Mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily have the frame of reference in terms of race, except within that context, we have mm-hmm. our own racial politics, mm-hmm. right? And then it was not until I came to this country, you know, as, as an immigrant, as a foreigner, then I started to understand mm. the racial politics. And who taught me about, you know, feminism? It's a black feminist, mm. right? It's a black feminism. So then the question is, that's our starting point about gender. Then you see now I'm in a different context. Let me learn about other systems of oppression, discrimination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let me learn about other things. Yeah. And so for me is then that goes back. Where is your humanity? Mm-hmm. If you lack that basic ability to mm-hmm. simply extend from where you are mm-hmm. to people who might have similar and shared experiences. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, it's it's... it's um, it's puzzling for me. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that I, I do with people when we get into these type of conversations and it turns into the educational part, I say, you know what? I start with, even within my own culture, I was raised with a certain level of privilege that some of my friends were not. 
Mm-hmm. So there are issues even within classism and, and things like that, that that they don't understand about me and I don't understand about them. That gives me the ability to educate mm-hmm. myself, to say, okay, you know, I didn't know my, you know, my parents had things set up for us, you know, so there were resources that I had access to. My siblings and I were driving our cars by 16 and 17, as long as we didn't get bad grades, you know, but knowing that I have friends who have yet, we're the age that we are now, they mm-hmm. buy their own car. Mm-hmm. So understand culture and to understand where you lie versus where you know lie like it just creates a, a foundation of being able to number one educate yourself number two extend humanity three it allows you to have a uh, humility for other people mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. care for other people um and then to realize that the world just doesn't revolve around you absolutely you know it just doesn't and so you do need to know that there are people who look different than you even with the same skin color as you mm. they are different than you. So God forbid you exit out of your bubble mm-hmm. and hit the actual streets of the city right. and see what people look like and not take the time to make those different, um, you know, mindless ideologies about individuals when you don't know who you're actually dealing with mm-hmm. or choose to be insensitive about something because you just don't see where it's a, a big deal. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I do to kind of stay humble because I, I just don't know who a person is. Mm-hmm. I look and see what I see, but I don't know you. Absolutely. You know, when I think about, so, for example, you know, if you think about immigrants, particularly students who, foreign students, mm-hmm. you need to have resources and capital mm-hmm. to travel, move to another country to study. Right. So it is not that I'm smarter than my friends back in Taiwan, mm-hmm. right? It is a particular status that allowed me right. to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And so, sure, you know, I, I never stopped saying that I worked very hard. But, hey, mm-hmm. my friends back in Taiwan also worked very hard, mm-hmm. right? But for some of my friends, that status can mark their inability to be able to, uh, say, travel to another country, to study mm-hmm. another country. Yeah. Um, so I am always aware that to an extent my class status allows me mm-hmm. to accomplish things. And this is not to say, you know, people are always afraid that when we raise the issue about privilege, because we, our society is built on a myth of meritocracy. Mm-hmm. But it's not. And, and so we're, people are so afraid that when we bring up the issue about privilege, we're saying that you don't work hard. Yeah. Right? That you don't deserve your accomplishment. Right. That you have not done anything. That's not the case. Mm-hmm. But it is to say that our starting point is right. very different. Right. And the context frames our journey mm-hmm. is absolutely different. Mm-hmm. And it might slow down our pace. It might fasten, right? Push, propel us moving forward. Mm -hmm. And every step of the way, for some people, that effort can be extra. Mm -hmm. For some people, it might be much easier. Um, And and I think fundamentally, when we raise the issue about privilege, it's a challenge. It is a whole myth, 
right? The American myth mm-hmm. of meritocracy, which right. really doesn't exist. Right. And so when I was uh, teaching, uh, you know, I still teach, and students are oftentimes, they always get squeezy about when we talk about privilege. Mm-hmm. Very uncomfortable. Right. And uh, especially when I was teaching at DePaul, because these, you know, DePaul is not a, uh, it's an expensive university. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to have something mm-hmm. to be able to go through that educational system, mm-hmm. right? So they are always, they feel overwhelmed, they feel guilt, they feel guilty. Mm-hmm. And so I would tell them, the point of talking about privilege is, is not to make you feel guilty. That's not, that defeats the whole purpose of education. Mm-hmm. The point is not that you have privileges. The point, the critical issue is what do you do with your privileges. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness you have privileges. Use them to do some good for people, please. Right. If you have power, if you have privileges, mm-hmm. figure out what you can do with them mm-hmm. to make the world a better place, to change the system. That's the central question to ask, as opposed to thinking, well, I have privileges, I'm going to feel guilty. And I say to them, it is a privilege to feel guilty about privilege, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Who has time? Yeah. Do something with your privilege. Mm. Put them into good use. Right. That's the key. Because I'm happy that you have privileges. Because mm-hmm. I want you to have privileges so you do something good for mm-hmm. people. That's what I want. Otherwise, mm-hmm. because what I recognize now at an older age, you need to have power. Mm-hmm. to change things. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget, you need to have resources and capital experiences, social capital, right? Mm-hmm. Any kind of power, assets, mm-hmm. to make changes. Mm-hmm. And so let's think from pragmatic perspective. What can you do with your privileges mm-hmm. to make the world a better place, as opposed to feeling overwhelmed, hopeless, helpless, and guilty, because that's mm-hmm. the last thing I want you to feel. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful place to leave things. Mm-hmm. So we're at that time, and that's that feels like such a perfect place to leave things for yeah. today. Do something good for people. Yeah. Think yeah. about what, what power you have in your privilege, whatever that is, and do something good with it. Absolutely. You know, what, what can you do for other people? Yeah. How can you serve other people? Um, I can be just an artist on my own, mm-hmm. or I can create something for people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about what do you do with power, resources, capital, assets, once you have them. Right. Well, for those who are listening and want to come to all of the wonderful shows that you curate or find your work, how can they get that information? Um, go to my Facebook, uh, the uh, website, uh, www.renegadeadajin, uh, that's a good place, or um, Dr. Adajin, Renegade Adajin on Facebook. Wonderful. That's a good way to follow as well. Great, yeah. and we'll link that as well so people Please can do. find it easily. Yeah. Please do, yeah. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure having you here. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Wisdom. Thoroughly enjoyed you. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Queer Stories and Twitter at Beyond Queer Pod. Also, check out the creator of our podcast music, Be Steadwell. She's an incredible queer artist who creates queer music and queer content. You can check her out at besteadwell.com. That's B-E-S-T-E-A-D-W-E-L-L.com. Also, if you want to be a guest on the podcast, you can look for our link to submit on both Facebook and Instagram or reach out to us at beyondqueerstories at gmail.com. And if you're an iTunes listener, please rate us and leave us a comment. We'd love to get your feedback. This also helps others find our podcast. Talk to you all next week. Next time on Beyond Queer Stories. And as a 21-year-old who had come out literally maybe a month before that and didn't kind of know what my rights or not rights were, the director basically told us that, not basically, completely told us that we had to sign a contract that said that we would not speak to one another until the end of camp. And if we did, we got fired immediately and were denied all of our pay. <laughs>